1: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed.
2: I'm David Suzuki. You and I belong to a unique species. Armed with the muscle power of science and technology, we have managed to conquer the Earth in just a few decades. But our ideology of progress and development is killing this planet. For this unique species, it's a matter of survival.
1: David Suzuki's radio series was originally broadcast in 1989. It warned us about the impact of climate change and, as you'll hear, was alarmingly prescient. This is the third episode in our series we're basing on that original one in 1989. We're calling it Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective.
3: in my darkest moments. um, I have real concerns that my my son, I just have one child, will in fact not be able to grow up.
4: It's already too late for my son. He will not enjoy a clean ocean, as I was able to do. He will not enjoy clean air and clean water, as I have been able to do. And the more he waits, the more difficult it will become to see undisturbed beauty.
5: The reason for my intense involvement in this really is my children and their children. I'm haunted by the thought of them living decades from now in a world of chaotic climate change with uh, all manner of uh, man-made horrors unleashed uh, upon this earth. But I'm inspired by the vision of
2: what we could create instead. A university professor, an ecologist with the World Bank, a U.S. senator who ran for president... All tell us that we are cheating our children it doesn't make any sense we love our children and we want them to have more opportunity for a better life than we did but look around we're stealing their future from them we feed them clothe them shelter them and send them into a changing world they may not even survive citizen advocate Ralph Nader
6: the storm is going to come in the 90s you see it's one thing when you have a, a, a river that's polluted here and an air pollution inversion in some city there. But now you see what are the new ecological uh, spectacles. They are global. They are acid rain. They are a greenhouse effect. They are the ozone hole. They are the uh, uh, impact on the plankton in the oceans. They are the destruction of the rainforest. And it's almost like an
2: invasion from Mars. In fact, it's even more insidious than an invasion from Mars. We have been invading and destroying our own world. All over the world, including North America, plant and animal species are disappearing at the rate of 20,000 a year. Now put one more potentially lethal ingredient into the mix, the warming of the earth, and you've got a situation that puts all human life at risk. What has happened to us? Twenty years ago, an economist from MIT, Jay Forrester, told us what was in store for us in a book called World Dynamics. He thinks our problems can be traced to the role we've chosen for ourselves. There
7: has been for one or two thousand years the idea that uh, mankind should conquer the earth, that the earth is here for the use of the human species. The uh, entire uh, Judeo-Christian tradition of uh, the world being here for mankind, taking dominion over the world, has uh, led to geographical exploration, to the subjugation of uh, primitive cultures, and now to the uh, subjugation of the uh, environment in a way that is going to produce a a backlash against the attacker. We see that now in the form of uh, acid rain killing forests, uh, the concern about pollution, uh, the falling water tables from uh, pumping more water than is uh, coming down as rain, uh, the uh, solid waste uh, dumps that we no longer know what to do with, the uh, oil spills in the ocean that are producing a film across the surface of the ocean. These are kinds of reactions back from the natural environment uh, that are in proportion to
2: the vigor with which we attack that environment. And yet if we look around, we can see that we are part of a web of life on the earth. We can't live without the air, the water, the soil, any more than any other life forms. Yet we've slowly been poisoning these life support systems. It's as if we don't understand our place in the world. Have we lost our sense of place? Stephen Lewis, former Canadian ambassador to the United Nations.
8: Sure, we've lost our sense of place, and I don't know whether it can be recaptured. There are a lot of people like me, who have been fashionable environmental rhetoricians, not like you, like me, Uh, who, who have never understood until recently how deep this runs, what's really at stake. People just understanding very, very late that all of this is out of control and that it's just coming to public attention now. And and the species doesn't have a sense of place. We are totally discombobulated, totally unnerved. We don't know what our kids are going to inherit. and And you don't have a sense of whether you can reverse it, because it seems so far along. And you know the stilted myopia of parochial politicians who worry about their next election campaign and answer all questions in a Pavlovian way, I've got to keep my voters satisfied, don't bother me about the world or the future. So it's as though all of it crept up, and all of you who were warning us over the years and all of the pollution probes, etc., just didn't reach the rest of us quickly enough.
2: Growth is what we've come to live for. It has been the inspiration for our political and economic systems. We've been brought up with the idea that there were no limits to growth. The environment was an infinite sink that we could dump our wastes into, and the earth supplied all the raw materials we needed to fuel the comforts of our lives. And not only could we grow, it was vital that we grow. If not, there were economic recessions and depressions. Jay Forrester. That indeed is the uh, normal reaction, that it is vital
7: to uh, grow. But then the question is, why? Uh, is it vital that we have ever more people? Is it vital that uh, we uh, move toward the uh, time of one uh, square yard per person? That's only a few hundred years away. At the present population growth rate, you're only uh, a few hundred years away from the uh, point of uh, one square yard per person. It's only a short time beyond that, less than a thousand years at this growth rate, when you must move the wavefront of humanity out at a third of the speed of light to clear the inside space. In other words, this process cannot continue. It will not continue. And the world dynamics and limits to growth argument was that an end is coming And it can come by different means, it can come from disaster, it can come from poisoning the entire environment, it can come from atomic war brought on by social uh, uh, pressures that are brought on by crowding, or we can look down that road and choose a different way of bringing this growth process uh, to an end. Do we want to control that process, or do we want the process to control us? I think we should look upon this process very much like a biological uh, cancer. Uh, biological cancer grows until it kills the host on which it is living and thereby kills itself. And I think uh, mankind in the world environment is quite capable of following that same scenario unless we become alert to what is happening and take the necessary fundamental steps to move into an equilibrium with our
2: environmental capacity. How did we get obsessed with this need to grow? Herman Daly is an economist with the World Bank in Washington. He is an economist like no other economist. Listen, and you'll see what I mean.
7: You know, historical perspective gets a little blurred sometimes we tend to think of uh, growth as if it had been the eternal norm. It's really only been the past 200 years that growth has, has been uh, really a part of, of, of our lives. Prior to that, on an annual basis, uh, growth was, was negligible. And the idea that we must either uh, grow or die or something like that is, is just not supported by history. And I think the contrary
2: is much more likely. Uh, if we continue to grow, then surely we'll die. Herman Daly is an economist who thinks that growth means death. But he's unique among economists. Till now, economics has never considered what the environmental costs are for our toxic emissions. We pump out all sorts of garbage as byproducts of industry and have always considered air, water, and soil as limitless and able to dilute out these poisons forever. But we can see all around us that it isn't the case. We know now that we live in a world with limits. Why has the science of economics never dealt with that? Stanford ecologist Paul Ehrlich. Well, the trouble
6: is that economists are trained in ways which make them utterly clueless about the way the world works. Economists think that the world works by magic. In other words, if you look open a standard economics text, you'll find in the beginning of it a diagram of the generation of gross national product which has no inputs at all from the real world. Economists are the only major group of scholars who believe in perpetual motion. They believe in an infinity of resources. They believe in all kinds of things that are simply fairy tales. And one of the most serious problems we have on our planet is educating economists. Less than 1% of the economists in the world have even the vaguest idea how the world works, and yet the politicians listen to the economists.
2: There are economists who argue, though, that through science and technology, we can continue to stay on top of our problems. That is, there's an infinite potential of the human mind to solve the kinds of problems that we have here on Earth and to bring us, in fact, virtually infinite new sources of energy and materials from outer space.
6: Yeah, well, it's interesting that many economists do believe that sort of nonsense. So they... They say you know that the ultimate resource is people. Actually, all they really prove is that the one thing we'll never run out of is imbeciles. No scientists believe that. Uh, the Club of Earth, which is made up of scientists who belong to both the American National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the two most distinguished scientific groups in the country, unanimously say that's not true. And so does everybody who examines the situation. But economists live again in a fairy tale world, and they believe fairy tales. Scientists know better.
2: Many. People I've encountered say that the long-term hope for the environment really lies in getting industry, economists, business people on board, so they realize that there's money to be made in cleaning up the environment.
6: Well, there may be some money to be made in cleaning up the environment, but your way you've got to get business people and economists on board is for them to understand that if they don't get off of this economic growth kick, if they don't start changing their behavior, their kids are going to be dead. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you can make money on it or not. It's like saying, well... We'll try and breathe next year if we can make money at it. You don't have any choice. The ecological systems support the economic system. If we don't maintain the ecological systems, there won't be any economic system, there won't be any businessmen, and there won't be any economists.
2: But if you talk to a politician today or a business person and say, what is the bottom line? What, you know, what, why are we here? What are we doing? They say, a business person would say, my job is to maximize profit. A politician, I think, almost to a person will say that we must do everything we can to ensure that our country carves out its place in the global economic community and that we have steady growth. Well,
6: first of all, what what anybody has to understand is that perpetual growth is the creed of the cancer cell. Steady growth or sustainable growth is a non sequitur. It is just simply cannot be done on a finite planet. You may be able to grow intellectually for a long time, but you cannot grow physically for a long time. We're already past the limits of sustainable growth. So if you hear somebody saying that, you know, again, they simply don't understand the situation. It's an old, that's an old Navy line, you know, if, uh, if you can keep your head while all those around you are losing theirs, you don't understand the situation. That's true of most businessmen, almost all economists, and most politicians, although a few are coming around to understand that if you're going to maximize profits, it's got to be maximized in a, in a constraint which says the total economic activity is absolutely limited. If you're going to make your profits bigger, somebody else's profits are going to have to get smaller, barring certain kinds of technological advances. If your company is going to grow, then somebody else's company has to shrink. Uh, If your population grows, then somebody else's population is going to have to shrink. If you're trying to carve out a bigger pick piece of the world economy for yourself, then that means you're trying to keep other peak countries from carving out as big a piece for themselves. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game as dictated by nature. There is nothing we can do about it. There are certain rules of the universe that humanity simply cannot repeal, and the sooner economists and politicians and businessmen begin to understand that, the sooner we'll begin to have a possibility of a
2: future for their children and grandchildren. If you think about it, the whole idea of economics is an incredible conceit. I mean, there may be 30 million species on this planet. Human beings are only one of them, yet we have invented a system that only sees value in human terms. If we can think of a use for something, it has economic worth. If we can't, then it's worthless. So in economic terms, the Amazon rainforest is undeveloped and only full of economic potential, even though to the millions of species that have lived there for millions of years, the forest is already fully occupied and fully developed. To economists, the fact that a standing forest performs services like cleansing the air, modulating weather and climate, preventing erosion and flooding, supporting animal and plant communities, has no economic meaning. Those services are called externalities that are not costed in standard economic analysis. It's no wonder, then, that the head of a major multinational corporation could state that a tree has no worth until it's cut down that's the economic mentality at work. Can we bring an about-turn? Bill Rees is a professor of urban planning at the University of British Columbia.
3: I guess my greatest hope is that we, over the next 20 years, can abandon the ethic of growth as the be-all and end-all. We've lost sight of so many other potentials that human beings have, and it's simply been submerged in this Interminable quest for material possession and new wealth. Um, Stickers on bumpers that you see around town here, he who dies with the most toys wins, is a kind of symbolic representation of the games people play in our economy at the present time. It's a joke, but it's not funny. Many people take it very seriously. The uh, great tanker spill in Alaska, for all its environmental damage, for all the tragedy that has created for local people, added several millions of dollars to the U.S. gross national product. So it goes down by our standard indicator of progress as a great benefit because it created new jobs in the shipyards that will have to repair the tanker, hundreds of new jobs in terms of the people cleaning up the mess and so on. All of those things are added to GNP when in fact the quality of the life for people there and indeed for the globe as a whole has deteriorated. Well, this is an absurd system. We have to shift from a system in which material progress is the only measure of worth. We are, in fact, in need of what people call a paradigm shift or a change in worldview. And it will uh, require a massive effort at every level of society to change the value set, the expectations of people by which we now operate on a daily basis if we're going to move in the direction necessary to, well... Save the species, save the planet.
2: What Bill Rees is talking about is a fundamental change in our value system. We've become blinded by the idea of progress that is defined by technological domination and economic growth. Mustafa Tolba, the head of the United Nations Environment Program, told me how, as a schoolboy growing up in Egypt, he was shown pictures of factories in Cairo belching out thick smoke over the countryside and proudly told by his teacher, this is a sign of progress. An ad for a Canadian tractor shows untouched forests as a before picture and an after picture in which the entire landscape is now a completely cleared and plowed field. Symbols of success, domination, control, and growth. Meanwhile, the planet is being skinned of its life support. Don't you think it would be an astounding achievement to live in balance or equilibrium with the rest of nature? Don't you think that would be a true measure of progress and growth? Human growth. Al Gore is chairman of the Environmental Study Group of the U.S. Senate. Our challenge, really, is to create in a single generation
5: a future in which people think and behave so differently that they look back on 1989, at the kind of pollution that is now underway, at the kind of destruction now underway, uh, at the kind of suffering we tolerate with 37,000 children under the age of five dying every 24 hours of starvation and preventable diseases. And they wonder as they shake their heads, how could people have thought in ways that allowed them to tolerate this kind of activity. I think we're capable of such a change. But the jury is still out. The answer is up to us. We have to regain our belief that our children's grandchildren will inhabit this earth and that what we do now should be undertaken with them in mind. Why is it that our generation in the 19 80s and 1990s has the right to reach back through millions of years of geologic time to get deposits that fuel our civilization and then quickly transform them into pollution that will be here for uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of years into the future. Uh, Don't we need to think about those who come after us?
9: I what? I'm living in the Kuchuk. I'm born 1922. I'm old lady now. <laughs> Eskimos, they call them, eh? Long time ago, they call me Inuit now. <laughs> uh, we used to live happy together. Long time ago, eh? Before the white people came around, we used to living on the only animals from land, the fish, caribou, ptarmigans, everything from land. I was upset about it, you know, real upset for Inuit, because that's our food, eh, real sad we hear about the polluted everywhere
4: pcbs ddt um, mercury cadmium lead uh, all those contaminants which are perhaps best uh, known in situations like uh, the, the great lakes and in the gulf of st lawrence are also found in the arctic <coughs>
0: yes, it worries him long time ago uh they never had to worry about uh, any kind of contamination in the food until recently, starting back in nineteen seventies uh they started hearing rep- um, such thing as contaminants but
10: um.
0: Now that it's part of the food chain, now that it's uh, existing in uh, the food chain and the seal, it worries him.
10: I'm
0: Joanna Awa. I'm an Inuk, and the north is my home. When I was a little girl back in the 60s, Houses were being built, and communities were being formed. It was the beginning of civilization for the Inuit. But my father, who had 11 children to worry about, refused to join a new settlement. We lived out on the land while kids my age were sleeping in heated homes. But my dad more than made up for the loneliness. We had abundance of wildlife for food, fresh water from the rivers, miles and miles of tundra to play on. You just walk a few steps from the camp and catch an arctic char for dinner. That was my world. I really felt secure in the vast land. And if I wanted a snack, I'd just pick leaves off the bushes and munch. But I've been told by southern scientists that the food which made me grow then can make me sick today. That's ironic because for thousands of years we have lived in harmony with nature. The thought never occurred to me that this very land we've respected could turn its back on us. We were told by our ancestors not to exploit and play around with nature because it has the power to backfire. Where did we go wrong?
1: You're listening to Ideas and to the third of our special summer series we're calling Suzuki's Survival Guide, A Retrospective. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayad. Back in 1989, David Suzuki hosted a radio series called It's a Matter of Survival. And while some of the specifics have changed since the 1980s, the themes he hit on then are prescient for us today, nearly 35 years later. This episode features excerpts from that 1989 series, which zeroes in on the clash between economics on the one hand and ecology on the other.
2: According to the World Watch Institute in Washington, we have just 10 years to make the changes that may save our world so it will be livable in the future. Lester Brown is president of the institute, which takes the pulse of the world on an annual basis.
8: In effect, each year we give the the Earth an annual physical exam and we check its vital signs. And what we find is that each year, the forests are shrinking, the deserts are expanding, the ozone layer is being depleted, topsoil is eroding, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is rising, the number of plant and animal species on Earth is diminishing. And the unfortunate thing is that now, even as we begin to work on 1990, state of the world 1990, we know that each of those trends will continue. There's not anything in prospect to turn any one of those around in the near future.
2: But there is an expression today that politicians and economists hope will turn things around in the future. It's called sustainable development. Gro Harlem Brundtland, the Prime Minister of Norway, headed the UN Commission on the Environment, which coined the phrase.
0: The commission defines sustainable development as meeting the needs and aspirations of present generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. We must learn to accept the fact that environmental considerations are part of a unified management of our planet. This is our ethical challenge. This is also our practical challenge. And it is a challenge that we must all take
2: meeting the needs and aspirations of present generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Doesn't it seem we should have been living this way all along? Yet we heard these words, sustainable development, only two years ago. Ironically, something similar was said to us a hundred years ago, but we didn't listen then. Maybe because the words were spoken by a man we all then would have called a savage. In 1854, the Duwamish Indian chief Seattle warned about the need to sustain the land for future generations. The white man does not understand our ways. One portion of land is the same to him as the next, for he is a stranger who comes in the night and takes from the land whatever he needs. The earth is not his brother, but his enemy, and when he has conquered it, he moves on. He leaves his father's graves behind and he does not care. He kidnaps the earth from his children. He does not care. His father's graves and his children's birthright are forgotten. He treats his mother, the earth, and his brother, the sky, as things to be bought, plundered, sold like sheep or bright beads. His appetite will devour the earth and leave behind only a desert. We certainly didn't listen to Chief Seattle then, And there are people who say, we're not listening to the spirit of sustainable development now, that in fact, the system may already be in the process of perverting the intent. MIT economist Jay Forrester. I think the
7: idea of sustainable development is uh, a deception. Uh, It is never very clearly defined. If by sustainable development, we mean continued growth, Of industry and population then it is the same old process. The very word development does not convey the idea of coming to an
2: equilibrium balance uh, with the environment. Bill Rees of UBC has similar thoughts.
3: The system has responded to the concept of sustainable development in a way that really uh, enables it to justify the status quo. So, it's not sustainable environment that we're talking about here, it's become sustainable development. And just a couple of years ago, when the term was popularized by the Brundtland Commission report, the so-called report on the global environment, I guess it's just called Our Common Future, when it came out, I think in most people's mind, there was a strong association to the environment, but gradually as industry have jumped onto the bandwagon, as governments have come onto the bandwagon, increasingly we hear sustainable economic development, rather than the emphasis being on the environmental side of things. In fact, I've collected a large number of papers referring to sustainable development, and every group, every individual who have written about this, have defined it to satisfy their own ideological perspective. So groups on the left or on the environmental side tend to define the term more or less in terms of of slowing down growth in the north of the developed countries, a greater emphasis on social and political issues, on the equity issue in the globe. So from the left, sustainable development is seen as a a means of justifying um, the developed countries looking seriously at the moral and ethical issues of that unequal division of wealth in the globe, and thinking of ways to increase the equitable distribution of what wealth there is. On the right, because we've always used economic growth, frankly, as our primary instrument of social policy, they've jumped on the term as a means to rationalize, increase another round of of global economic growth so that the poorest countries will get a larger share of wealth and it will mean no sacrifice at all to those of us in the north or in the developed countries. So the real question is, does the world's ecosphere have the capacity to sustain yet another round of economic growth on the scale that would be required? And if you recall my proportional distribution of wealth that I mentioned just a moment ago, it doesn't take much for you to realize that it would require a five to tenfold increase in the nature of material industrial activity to bring the third world up to more or less European standards of living. Well, in a world in which all of the indicators in terms of changing atmosphere, changing marine environments, deteriorating soils around the world, forest destruction, and so on. It becomes a real question whether the ecosphere can sustain even a doubling of the current rates of economic activity. I really do not think that a 5 to 10-fold increase in the rate of material consumption by a much more uh, massively demanding economy is in the ecological cards. And if that's the case, we have a very serious amount of thinking to do about how we're going to get through the next 40 to 50 years.
2: What kinds of decisions do we have to make? My parents used to say, we have to live within our means. And in the forties, that meant depending on neighbors and relatives, growing and bottling a lot of our own food, making do with the bare necessities. It wasn't that we were enlightened. We had to live that way. Once the optimism and growth of the fifties were underway, we were swept up in it like everyone else. But the point is, we've only been wasteful and short-sighted in recent times, and there is still a memory of how to live with a lot less. But the fundamental change that we need to get us through is a different way of viewing our place with the rest of life on Earth. That other world view exists right in our midst among the native people of Canada. Henry Lickers is the director of the Environment Division of the Mohawk Council of Aquasni.
11: I think the basic way you went wrong is you forgot that you were people. You looked on yourself as gods themselves. And as that, you said, this is our land to do with as we please, to make as much, we'll say, profit or value to us. You forgot that everything in this earth has an intrinsic value to itself, and that value is very important. You forgot there is a family. And that family is this earth, and the, and the earth is your mother. And when that happened, you left aside those things, and you called them unreasonable. And that the only reasonable path that we could take was one that made us wealthy. And that, I think, is probably the, that is the, the deepest way that you've gone wrong and now what you're seeing is is that uh, and the despair that you feel uh, i don't feel quite that despair that we don't have time yet i still think we have time the despair you feel is is that there's not enough money left you know that you've come to the end of the barrel when uh, one of our elders told eisenhower you know that when you know the last tree is cut down when the last river has been polluted and when the last uh uh, animal has been slaughtered to to feed your consumption and your last hunk of money has been produced you won't be able to eat that money and you won't survive and the only thing that you can do is integrate yourself back <laughs>
3: My name is Brian Walsh, and I'm a fisherman in Bay de Verde, Newfoundland, and it's a really miserable day. We have a northeast wind, rain, drizzle and fog, typical Newfoundland weather for this time of year. Fishing is not just a job, it's not just another job, it's a sort of a way of life, it's something that you really have to be dedicated to and you really have to be an eternal optimist. I suppose all fishermen are, are, are optimistic. You're always going to get more tomorrow than you got yesterday. which is. Not always the case. One thing that you learn is that the sea is neither cruel nor kind. It's completely indifferent to everything and everybody, because there's no fish out there to catch. So we can know we can't catch what's not there. God knows we try hard enough. It just seems to be pretty well on the bottom. I don't know if it can get any worse than what it's been for the last few years.
10: This is my 58th year fishing. It's a long shave. A man is fishing. He's he's, he's taking in what's going on. He knows just he knows just what's going on. But uh, those scientists, they don't. They, I, I don't believe our Canadian scientists put half enough time on the ocean uh, to see to see the real thing. But now there's no turbot left. There's no flounder left. And the cod. Well, when I was fishing, you could go out here or anywhere around Bacaloo you catch cod, oh anywhere from two and a half to four feet long. Now you go out, you get them 12 inches long, 18 inches. Not too often you get any any cod, any size. Oh, it's just discouraging to see see what's going on.
12: Unfortunately, uh, fish are different from trees. If we fly over Newfoundland, we can very clearly see the damage that the fires and the budworm has done to our forest. Okay, we can see that. Okay, so we believe it and we do something about it. Right? The thing that bothers me is that in the ocean, uh, uh, unfortunately, we can't see the fish. Okay, so we assume that everything is is going okay. But I think a fisherman, a fisherman can kind of see through it. The fisherman can visualize oil spills and whatever, because there's tankers beyond tankers going within our course. He can visualize the, uh, the, the dragger taking so much fish away from him that he sees uh, that the ocean is not clean anymore, and therefore it will affect uh, the pattern of fish, for one thing. It will affect the numbers of fish, for another thing. So uh, you put all that together, and he sees that as a real threat.
10: 1812. Our ancestors—they started in 18, 1812. They had the, they had a, a plantation over here and the fishing rooms, and uh, they've been fishing ever since. And uh, their fishing has steeped into to the, the us anyway. And now, for everything to fall up and to be a sad day, it's a very sad day. I don't know what's going to happen. Don't make, make much difference to me now. <laughs> I'm just about had it. But uh, for the younger younger generation, if they don't uh, look after our stocks, the few of the bitters left, then that'll be nothing left for the for the inshore fishermen, nothing.
2: Our lives are changing before our very eyes. Can we afford to continue on the path we're on? Jeremy Leggett is the director of science for the environmental group Greenpeace in England.
13: In the last analysis, it's really very simple. It boils down to an issue of survival. If we want our species to survive, indeed in a more immediate term, if we want our children and their children to survive, to have a future, a viable future, we have to radically change the way we think Now it doesn't necessarily have to involve a dramatic lowering of lifestyle there are ways of doing it that don't involve that but they are very very radical and they involve restructuring of the entire basis of the way we live if you look at uh, vegetation we control 40 percent of all the vegetation on the planet for our own needs if you look at Raw materials, every man, woman and child on the planet uses or we use on their behalf, 10 tons a year. That's 50 billion tons of material, more material than is carried by all the rivers on the earth in one year. And, of course, this involves toxic materials which are going to leak out, which are going to be deposited where they can get into the biosphere, into living systems, and do us down. And it can't continue. It's just fundamentally non-sustainable. And if you look at what much of that stuff is for, it's for luxury goods, it's for things we don't need, it's for accoutrements, little minor modifications to our ridiculous lifestyle.
2: Robert Goodland is an ecologist with the World Bank in Washington. In an institution that is not known for its outspokenness, he is surprisingly blunt. Robert Goodland says it's time to change.
4: Business as usual with um, a token cosmetic add-on, uh, a black box on the end of the tailpipe or a, a higher chimney is out. Um, of course, in the interim, until we can uh, revamp our economic thinking to a more sustainable approach, then a band-aid is better than hemorrhage. But um, no, business of u- usual is no answer. Time has already run out for vast areas of the world, period. For the rest, time is running out very fast. We may already have overshot In other words, some large damage may already have occurred of which we're unaware or the effects of this damage haven't started to hurt us yet. Um, The perforation of the ozone layer occurred as one sudden dramatic large hole in one unexpected part of the world. It did not occur as expected as a gradual thinning of the ozone layer fairly uniformly, let's say, worldwide. That is an example of how unpredictable some of the environmental damage um, is likely to be. With acid rain, uh, carbon dioxide greenhouse effect, um, and the extinction of species, we already may be too late. We may have already put so much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that even if we cease tomorrow, which is exceeding unlikely, we may already be in for a lot of damaging, economically damaging effects. Sea level rise, um, unpredictability of the of the weather, uh, drought and uh, rain and place, uh, floods in other places. So, um... I think basically it's too late in many areas and it's getting too late in in much of the others. It is a cause for alarm, but everyone can contribute to the solution. This world is such a beautiful, enthralling, fascinating place that whatever is left is certainly more than worth saving. Don't leave it to the scientists of which I'm one. You, everyone, has their place. Do whatever you think you can do and that is more than enough. Activism is much more important now in the less than one decade remaining to save the globe than any amount of science. If you're good at organizing people, if you're good at uh, sipping frozen daiquiris with chief executive officers, go do it. If, on the other hand, you want to impose um, a soft, body between a harpoon and a whale, then go and do that, and God bless you. Everyone has their place in society. Do what you do best, uh, but do something, and we can save it. For the past five weeks, we've listened
2: to a grim litany of the destructive path we're on. I wish it were just a nightmare so we could wake up, or a radio drama that is just make-believe, but it isn't we have to face the reality of what scientists are telling us. It's a cop-out to say it's too depressing or it's too overwhelming. We have a stake in what happens because our children will inherit what we leave them. But until we truly accept the reality that this planet may soon become unlivable, we'll only make token gestures. You see, my parents always taught me we are what we do, not what we say. If our leaders among government, industry, and workers really see that it's a matter of life and death, a matter of survival, then they would have to act. If the very stuff that we need to breathe, drink, and eat hangs in the balance, can we continue to say that economic growth, profit, material goods, or even political power are the bottom line? In times of crisis, people have pulled together, and forgotten their mistrust and petty rivalries. They've changed their lives, sacrificed, and worked to get out of it. There has never been a bigger crisis than we face now, and we are the last generation that can pull us out of it. We have to act, because this is the only home we have. It is a matter of survival. and assistants, Steve Payne and Ben Schaub. Field producers, Lynn Glazier and Chris Grosskerth of the program Sunday Morning. Writers, Anita Gordon and David Suzuki. Technician, Larry Morey with technical assistance from Dave Field. Producer, Penny Park. The executive producer is Anita Gordon. I'm David Suzuki. Please remember, it is a matter of survival.
1: The excerpts you've been hearing till now were drawn from the last episode of It's a Matter of Survival, which was first broadcast in 1989. In our next episode of our radio retrospective of David Suzuki's work, we'll jump ahead to the 1999 series he produced for Ideas. That series was called From Naked Ape to Superspecies and explored the human capacity to address problems that we ourselves have created.
2: In September of 1991, eight people were sealed into a giant bubble in the middle of the Arizona desert. It was called Biosphere 2, and it was meant to recreate the Earth's natural systems. It housed different ecosystems like desert ocean, grasslands, and tropical forest. 3,800 different plant and animal species were collected and set up inside. It was an attempt to create an airtight, self-sustaining system that would eventually make long voyages in space possible. It was a miniature version of Biosphere 1, the Earth, and it was supposed to provide the clean air, water, and food needed to support the Bionauts over two years. It was, you might say, the arc of technology. As an ecologist, Gretchen Daly had a keen interest in how it all turned out.
14: $200 million went into creating a tiny little self-contained ecosystem in which eight people were hoping to live for a period of two years. So this little area, it's down in Arizona, is, um, it's you know about maybe three or four acres in area. And it's got a little ocean, it's got croplands, it's got rivers. It's got all kinds of stuff in there that would, in theory, help purify wastes and all that stuff, perform all these services. And yet the people that went into this found that even with heroic efforts, um, they couldn't keep it going. Rapidly, the oxygen levels plummeted because of activities of some of the soil organisms I told you about. And um, so the oxygen level went down to what you'd find at over seventeen thousand feet in elevation, so they're nearly (laughs) going hypoxic in there. Then um, nitrous oxide levels skyrocketed to a level at which function of the brain can be impaired or actually severely damaged. All kinds of things happened. All of the pollinators went extinct and many of the species they had put in there went extinct, thereby dooming most of the plant species to eventual extinction. The water had to be purified by hand because none of the natural purification systems that they thought they had designed in there were working, and all sorts of other things happened. Cockroaches and katydids and these crazy ants lost their minds and took over. Vines grew out of control, so people had to spend a huge amount of time just cutting back and trying to control the organisms that took advantage of this situation and the lack of natural controls on their activities. So. What that shows you is, you know, we most of these services are so complex, they operate on such large scales and they're so little explored that we can hope to replace them with technology.
2: In a way, this was a successful experiment because it proved we don't have any idea how to create an environment that supports us like the one we already get for free. As we tear at that fabric of life, we like to think that human ingenuity will always make up for our destructiveness. So far, we're not even close. Gretchen Daly.
14: It is humbling. I mean, it makes you laugh. <laughs> it, it shows, I don't know, some of the good sides of humanity. You could say our curiosity, our determination. And in many ways, those are, we would think of them as noble qualities. I mean, they're interesting things, but at the same time, we're like little kids. You know, we just, we've, we've amassed this power and we've deceived ourselves somewhat i mean in modern urban societies today and in the most basically the richest and most powerful parts of the world people are so removed from these ecosystem services that that they've basically all but faded from view
1: You were listening to Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. You can find past episodes of this series and hundreds of other ideas episodes on your favorite podcast app, including the CBC Listen app. Series producer, Nikola Lukšić. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed.